That doesn't get old, does it? It does not. Who's ready to get in the word of the, the word of the Lord this morning? You can remain seated for the reading of the word today. It comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We'll wait for a moment to get that on the screen. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1 through 9. 1 Corinthians 1, 1 through 9. Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and Sothenus, our brother, unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Grace be unto you, and peace from God our Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God which is given you by Jesus Christ, that in everything ye are enriched by him, in all utterance and in all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that ye come behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall also confirm you unto the end, that ye may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom ye were called unto the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Lord, we thank you once again for those members in this church. We thank you for your word. We thank you that it is not changed just like you have it. We thank you that we have it. We, Lord, treasure it today. And I pray, God, that as pastor brings the word this morning, that you would anoint him and give him liberty in this place, Lord. And I pray that you would let us be prepared for that which you have for us today. Let us not just hear it, but let us take it into our hearts and let it change us, transform us. Let us also do what you say, not just be hearers. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. You know, I was thinking when I was looking over the pictures that was sent to me on my phone that I was talking about earlier, how that things has changed in the church world and how our culture's changed and how that the, the church has become more contemporary in the age that we live in. I was looking at my children and the, the pictures that they had taken, it was right before we went to church and Sam was just a little bitty guy, you know, and um, he was in a, I mean, a massive suit and tie. And I got to thinking, you know, even back then, even the children wore suits and ties. And um, then all of a sudden across the, I don't know who sent it, but across that said, look, it's Urkel. And uh, so they were making fun of him. But the, we, we really evolved in the church and we have become contemporary. And I'm going to be dealing with some issues about the culture that we're living in and by what the church world is to be and, not, and what the church world is to do and what the church world is to expect. We're going to be talking about that in, in the sermon this morning. Today, I believe that we are facing one of the most powerful spiritual revolutions that this world has ever faced. I really believe that. I believe that we're on the threshold of one of the greatest awakenings that this nation has ever, ever experienced in all of its history. I also understand that in every revolution that took place, it was not named until it was over because the people really never really knew what that outcome of that revolution would be. The French Revolution, the Bosnian Resolution, and any other resolution that you want to go to was not called by those names until they seen who actually the victor was. And when we talk about the history of this great nation, seen in what is known as the Great American Revolution, it is called the Great American Revolution because the patriots won. America won. Can, give you, can you give God praise for that? And there was a birth of a nation. 
And it was because that we had won that battle. To say that there is a revolution on the way means that there is opposing forces that has different plans, ideas, different platforms, different agendas. And one or the other of those agenda, or, uh, agendas or platforms will win and the revolution will be called by the name according to the victor. I will admit that I believe that there's a showdown in America between good and evil, between spirit and flesh, between holy and the unholy. I believe that there is a spiritual war going on for the core values of America. Can you say amen? And we know that even though God is bigger than all of this stuff, yet we also know that God's will is not always performed in the earth like he would desire. The real truth of the matter is God does nothing outside of faith. He uses common people just like you and me to do extraordinary things for him. God does nothing apart from his body, the church. He has chosen the church to be his vehicle in which he uses to bring about his causes. And to have a spiritual revolution, it takes regular people like you and me to dare believe and be bold in our faith and put our faith into action. And not just be someone that hears the word, but we become doers of the word. We, the church, cannot deny that God has called his church to do great things for the kingdom of God. We are to be Christ functioning body on the earth. We are to be his mouthpiece, his legs, his feet, his hands, and we are to extend our whole lives to the cause of the lost and dying of this world. And even though I believe that there's going to be a spiritual revolution, yet I am also very much aware you cannot name it until the outcome is no longer in the making. Will this nation really be overtaken by the spiritual force of the church, or will it be a revolution of evil dominating, enslaving, and ravaging the people like it seems that is happening right now. If something does not turn, you and I are going to face some of the darkest days that this nation has ever faced. Will this last day revolution in America be one of darkness that's blanketing the nation, destroying hope, bringing destruction? Or will it be one of light and power, saving lives, bringing restoration, healing and deliverance and hope in Jesus Christ? I know that there's some wanting the nation to turn back to normal or what we call normal to the pre-COVID days. But I'm not wanting our nation to turn back to the pre-COVID days. I'm not wanting this nation to turn back to what we considered was normal. Because I want you to know that I do not believe that was a good state either. Their people are wondering when can we get back to a normal way of life when Americans pulled together and honored one another and where sports and media and Hollywood and, and big tech was not political and when people had the right to disagree and the, even uh, the comedians could laugh and joke toward each other and the politicians could joke towards one another and they could disagree in the cabinet and yet go golfing together afterwards and be friends. They're wondering when can we go back to a time of vacation as you please, a time of ease, a time of prosperity, a time of freedom. Well, I tell you what we're calling vacation and freedom and all that, actually the Bible calls it in a state of lukewarmness. Our lukewarmness is what cause us to be where we're at right now. And yet there's a mass number of other people who have a sense of uneasiness, a burden, and a feeling and a draw of the Spirit to rise up and fight the good fight of faith. 
I have never been so weighty in my life. And I keep trying to shake the weight off. And I keep trying to want to believe in hope. And I want to be encouraging. And I want to have a positive word. But yet the spirit is heavy inside of me. And I begin to weep over this nation. And I still believe that if we'll pray and seek the face of God that our land can be healed. How many is with me today? Yet there's an uneasiness in so many of the people. And people are starting prayer groups all over the place. One of my friends just told me last night that he started a, a men's or, or a, a business group prayer meeting. I thought, how powerful. And I myself have started prayer meetings and women have started prayer meetings and prayer cells are going up all over the place. So there's still hope in America. Yet I want you to know, I will tell you that the spiritual revolution that we desire will and can only happen when God's people begin to rise up and then stand up and then speak up. It's not just going into prayer, but it's praying over things and then being motivated out of that prayer to put legs in our faith and begin to proclaim the goodness of God in the land of the living. When Jesus came to the earth and he was born in the Bethlehem manger, it was not a good time for a baby to be born. The culture of that day was much like our culture today, very similar. The Roman government was corrupt. They were oppressing the people. They were exploiting the poor. The culture was sensual, very sensual, sinful, and even demonic and devilish. We won't go into what all the Romans done and their cruelty, but it was not a good time to be born. But nevertheless, we see that Jesus started a spiritual revolution with just 12 men. It is said of those 12 men in the book of Acts that they turned the world upside down and they filled the land in Jerusalem with the doctrine of Jesus Christ, just 12 men. Them 12 turned into 70, that 70 turned into 120, that 120 turned into 3,000, that 3,000 turned into 5,000, and then they began to multiply the saints. It all started with a small core. How many believe that this core right here of believers, this remnant, can start a revival and awakening throughout the land that is like no other? How many believe it? Come on, somebody get in the sermon with me. You believe that? Now I'm laying a foundation. Just stay with me. And we also see that those men went and established churches in the land that would be a part of this revolution. Let me ask you a question. Do you really want to be a part of a revolution? How many wants this church to be a church that is entrusted of bringing and birthing a spiritual revolution in the earth? Do you really want that? Well, we'll find out if you do when we get done preaching here today. Because when you begin to say that you want to really do something for God, there's a heavy responsibility and a cost that's got to be paid in order to see that to happen. We say we want to see a lot of things, but a lot of times we don't want to put forth the effort that it takes in order to see the end result that we desire. And you and I are going to have to understand that nothing comes cheap and anything worthwhile is going to take a lot of sweat and tears, a lot of hard labor, and a lot of work in order to bring about what God desires to see upon the earth. Here we see that we see that the Apostle Paul begins to address one of those churches that was a established by the apostles. And we see that it is here that Paul is addressing the church at Corinth and he is opening, in his opening remarks, he begins to address them as the called ones. Now notice that. He brings their attention to the fact that they are a part of the true church, God's church, the chosen ones. He addressed them as the church of God, which is at Corinth. He said, you're a part of the true church, the real worldwide church. He makes a statement of their identity and he's identified 
identifying them as being a part of the literal body of the Lord Jesus Christ. He continues and he addresses them as being those that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, which means that they are the separated ones, that they are the cleansed ones. He's saying you're sanctified, you're cleansed, you're set apart. These remarks sometimes seems to surprise many scholars because of the nature and the content of the behavior that seemed to be in the Corinthian church. As a matter of fact, the Corinthian church by all means was far from being perfect. As a matter of fact, there were many, many blemishes and problems in that church. Paul throughout the book of Corinthians addresses issues such as sexual immorality. And in the area of sexual immorality, he dealt with fornication. He dealt with adultery. He dealt with incest. And not only that, in the history of the writings of the church at Corinth, they literally, the, the area around where the church was at was heavily known for prostitution. And literally the prostitutes were coming in and sitting on the pews and they were trying to seduce the men and there was a heavy, heavy, heavy sexual temptation in that church. And so there was fornication, there was adultery, but there was even incest where a man actually took away his father's wife, his stepmother, and began to sleep with her. And we see Paul dealing with those kinds of problems. He also dealt with all kinds of relational problems, such as power struggles. Women were trying to usurp authority over the men and take positions that was not rightful in Scripture. And there was marriage issues that Paul dealt with. And there were even lawsuits in the church where brothers were suing brothers. God forbid that that would ever happen. He deals with the misuse of the gifts of the Spirit. He deals with the misuse of communion and the overzealousness of the people. He dealt with the problem of traditions, what one could eat and what they couldn't eat, what they couldn't wear and what they couldn't wear. He dealt with all kinds of problems. Go through the book of 1 Corinthians and the book of 2 Corinthians and see all of the mess, all of the carnality and all of the flesh that was involved in that church. And when you look at this church, it would be the farthest thing from what you would call a spiritual or a holy church. You would not put this church in the category of one that was active in what you would call in bringing about a spiritual revolution. It would not be a church where we would want to attend or where we would want to be a part of or be a member of and we certainly would not want to raise our family in a church like that. One would not want to associate with even the church that had that kind of a reputation or had that kind of an image because you would hear people say, did you know that down there at the Corinthian church, there's fornicators down there. Oh, you think that's bad. I heard so-and-so, there's incest. And the list went on and on and on of all of the problems that this church was noted for within that little community. Yet the Apostle Paul in his opening remarks, he confuses us a little bit and he makes us examine our thoughts and our judgment toward this church at Corinth. He, in his opening remarks, he addresses them as the sanctified ones and even called them saints. He called them the cleansed ones. Now how in the world could he put that kind of a title on them with the problems that was going on in the church? And even though he had to reprove the Corinthian church on many, many occasions, actually, did you know the Apostle Paul reproved this church more than any other church throughout the epistles? They're the ones that got the most reprimands than any other church that we can find in the Word of God. And yet in his address to them, he pronounces grace and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, even in verses 4 through 6, 
6, he praises them and admonishes them and recognizes them for having extra measure of grace given to them from God. Listen to what he says in verse 4. I thank God always on your behalf. He's thanking God for the church and what they represent and who they are. He's giving praise to God for them. And then he says, for the grace of God, which was given to you by Jesus Christ, he said, you're a congregation that's had great grace. And then he said that in everything you are enriched in him, in all utterance and in all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. Oh, how confusing. How weird is all of these kinds of statements in this address. There seems to be a contradiction between Paul's description of them in his address versus their actual behavior and conduct in the church. And Paul went on in verse five and he said that in everything you are enriched by him in all utterance and in all knowledge. Yet the church had a problem in the area of speech and in the practice of gifts according to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Paul says, you're in, but yet Paul says, even though they got these problems, he says you're enriched in utterance, meaning your spiritual speaking. He said you're enriched by God by your spiritual speaking, but yet in chapter 14 he deals with problems of the misuse of gifts. And even though there was the misuse of gifts, most of them was in the area of speaking in tongues and interpretation and in utterance and in prophecy and in their spiritual speaking. Paul ask them how is it that when you come together every one of you have a tongue every one of you have an interpretation every one of you have a revelation every one of you have a prophecy so when you come together everybody's wanting to prophesy everybody's wanting to give a revelation everybody's wanting to give out tongues and he says it's nothing but chaos and then Paul then instructs them let one speak in tongues let everybody else keep silent do it by course you all have the chance to do it and then he said let one interpret the rest of you remain quiet quiet and if the interpretation does not come after it goes out two to three times then remain quiet and let everything be done and done to edifying. Everything's got to be de- done decently and in order Paul says. Here is a church that have problems in the area of speech and in the practice of spiritual gifts but yet Paul in his address says you're enriched in utterance and spiritual speaking. Is that a contradiction? What, what is that? Is he, is, what's going on here. We we don't understand what's taking in place because what he seems to be admonished them of seems to be the opposite of what they're doing in the scripture. Does anybody see that with me? If you say, say amen. Amen. Then the church, we see, was not only reproved over the misuse of gifts, but they were unsound in a lot of things. Unsound in communion, unsound in marriage, unsound in the eating of meats that was offered up to idols, and unsound in the practice of church government, unsound in the usage of not only the gifts of tongues and interpretation, but other gifts. But then Paul said, you are enriched with all knowledge and enriched in everything, that God has blessed you beyond anybody else is what he's saying. He said, and you're enriched in everything and in all knowledge. Paul even went as far as to say that the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. As I began to study this, I thought, Lord, what in the world are you trying to show this preacher? And all of a sudden, I began to understand where God was leading me. Even with all of these problems, Paul in his open statement said that the word of God was confirmed in you. He said, I want you to know, he said that the testimony of Jesus Christ was 
revealed to you and the word of God was confirmed through you as a church because you're enriched with all knowledge and you're, you're, you're increased in all things. And, and, and I'm, I'm saying I still don't understand. This meant that God confirmed them as he did his disciples. He gave them the testimony that he was with them. God was saying, I gave you a testimony that Corinth, I am in your midst. I am among you. I am with you. I have confirmed my word and I have confirmed the testimony of my son in your midst. Now think about that. They were, they were what you would call a New Testament church. They were like the disciples when it says, and they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them, confirming the word with signs and wonders. How did God confirm the word? He confirmed them with signs and wonders. Folks, signs and wonders and miracles happened at the church at Corinth. Matter of fact, Hebrews 2 and 4 says, God also bearing them witness both with signs and wonders and divers miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. Now I'm going to do some teaching here today. Hang with me. The church that seemed to us to be the most sinful and ungodly and unspiritual, Paul addresses them as being the most spiritual. It's quiet. What's going on? We don't understand Every time they preached a sermon, every time they prayed a prayer, every time a, every time a gift of the, one of the gifts went out in operation, God somehow, sometime or another, confirmed that word through them and the testimony of Christ was revealed and God's will was accomplished among that congregation. How is it that with all the problems, with all the unsoundness, with all the misuse of the spiritual gifts, that God blessed them and that God used them? I thought he only used holy churches. We're striving for holiness to where nothing will hinder us from having a move of God. So what's taking place? Are, 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 do we have a double standard? Does God bless certain churches one way and another church another way? Do, what, what, what's taking place here? First of all, I think it is noteworthy to say that Paul did not condemn the gifts, but he only condemned the misuse of those gifts. And just because there is misuse in the body and ignorance in the practice of the gifts does not mean that that was the majority of the church doing it. Somehow, when somebody does something, we want to tag the, the, the behavior of the whole church to the wrong that just a handful of people are doing. Come on now. We judge the whole barrel of apples by one bad apple. Come on. Let me tell you this. At the church of Corinth, there had to be gifts and for there, in order for there to be the misuse of those gifts. Amen? Some churches never have the misuse of gifts. You know why? Because they are void of the gifts altogether and they'll have no gifts at all operating in it. Paul even addresses them and expected them that they would come behind in no gift. In other words, he believed that all of the gifts of the Spirit would be in operation in the midst, and he said that they were in operation in the midst. He said, you have come behind in no gift, that all nine of the gifts of the Spirit are seen working in and amongst that congregation. There was the the demonstrated gifts because the word of knowledge, the word of wisdom, the discerning spirits is seen in his statement when he said, you're enriched with all knowledge. 
There was the demonstrated gifts of healing, the gift of faith, and the working of miracles in the testimony that of Christ being confirmed in them. And then there was the communicative gifts because it was addressed when he enriched all utterance and he said that there were tongues, interpretation of tongues, and a prophecy in their midst. So he says all of the nine gifts were in operation. You come behind in no gift. That you were spiritual, that you had the gifts of the spirit, but you had a some that were misusing those gifts. And though there were problems in the church and even among the use of those spiritual gifts, yet it would be those same gifts that would be used by the Apostle Paul to bring correction and order and straighten out the mess. In 1 Corinthians 12, 31, it says, but covet earnestly the best gifts, and yet I show unto you a more excellent way. The more excellent way was by the exercising of the gifts. It was the gift, it was the gifts that brought the instruction to straighten out the mess. Can I have an amen? Folks, can I tell you there's power in the gifts of the Spirit and they are not to be despised? Somebody preach with me here today. 1 Thessalonians 5 and 20 says, despise not prophecy. Paul said, discern and covet the earnest to gifts. Seek for the gifts. I can handle the misuse of gifts. This means that there are people that are stepping out and they're trying the Spirit. They're wanting to learn. They're desiring. They're hungry. They believe in in the spiritual gifts. But I cannot handle, and God forbid, that we would ever have no gifts operating at all in our church. If there's the misuse of the gifts, I am as a pastor and the deacons of the church can pull those people aside and help them to learn how to operate in that gift correctly. We've done it a million times. This church that seemed to have so many problems was the church that received the highest compliments, not only from the apostle Paul, but God himself. They actually were the one church that received great grace, power, and blessing from God the Father and his son, Jesus Christ. Can I tell you, the more risk you take, the more grace you will get from God. The harder the task comes and the more probability that you will fail will give you the more grace in order to substantiate the failure that you're doing in order to try to obey God. Somebody give the Lord praise. You want grace? Step out on a limb and if the limb breaks, God will give you grace. How do I know? Because when Jesus seen Peter walking on the water and when he lost his faith, at least he stepped out of the boat. And even though he began to sink, he was the only one that Jesus walked up to and grabbed a hold of his hand and lifted him up. And he got to have the experience of walking back to the boat with Jesus Christ. And I'm here to tell you, though you may fail in trying to do something hard, more grace will be given to you for those that try than to those that don't try to do anything. So what I'm telling this congregation to try, try, try. Step out of the arena of your comfort, comfortality and your familiarity and step out of the boat and say, God, whatever it is you want me to do, I'm ready to be a candidate for the supernatural working miracles of God. I'm ready. Even though I may fail, I know that grace will sustain me in my failure. Give the Lord praise for that word. The more that you're willing to step out and go beyond yourself and operate in the anointing, the more grace God gives you in your effort to excel. No one excels without failure. No one. And it is failure that is the springboard to greatness and failure is the greatest teacher that you'll ever have. 
Amen? Failure is what propels you into your destiny. It is the learning curve that pushes you over the top. But the fear of failure has kept more people from receiving their promise and has caused them to abort their destiny more than any other thing. Afraid to even do anything. Afraid to try. Afraid to step out. Afraid of being a failure. Afraid of looking like an idiot. Afraid of someone talking. Don't worry about what anybody says. Step out and the grace of God will cover you. They stand, a lot of these people that have this fear, they stand idle, burying their talents, rejecting the notion that God has greatness for them. And let me speak to every single one of you here today. God has greatness for all of you. And you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. And there's nothing, nothing that is formed against you that God cannot whip and cause you to be a victor in Jesus Christ. Amen. You know, when you think of a church that's anointed and spiritual and one that will rise up and lead a spiritual revolution, you would not even think of the Corinthian church at all. We think that a spiritual church is a problem-free church, a flawed-free church, a clean church, one without spot or blemishes or messes. Most people do not look at the Corinthian church as a spiritual church. As a matter of fact, it has been condemned by more preachers and teachers and ed- educators than any other church in the scripture. But it wasn't only the apostle Paul that commended it and stood up for it, but it was God himself that confirmed himself in it. Amen? The truth of the matter is, we in our own self-righteousness does not always see the things the way that God sees them. Our definition does not always match the definition of God. Our Webster Dictionary does not always line up with the Bible. Amen? Our judgment isn't always right, and God sees beyond what the natural eye can see, and he sees things in the spirit realm as they are. And we as Christians have the tendency not to see the spiritual church as a messy church. I submit to you this morning, a church that is not messy is not spiritual. Whoa. Boy, it's heavy in here today. You're saying, man, you calling us messy. I'm saying I want to be as messy as we can get. Hallelujah. Matter of fact, we're a little bit of a twisted family around here. Come on now. Being messy doesn't make you spiritual, but if you're spiritual, you're going to be messy. As I began to put this sermon together, I didn't really, really understand it. It really didn't make sense to me at first. It actually went against everything that I've ever been taught in my ministry. How can God confirm and see all these things that he said about a church and yet it have all the problems and all the difficulties that it had in it? And then the Holy Spirit began to say this to me. It just come to me in this manner. He put things into perspective by going back to our original start here at the, as a church, as a congregation, way back on Ninth and Cedar. And God just put this in the scripture. To the church of God, which is at Poplar Bluff on Ninth and Cedar, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all that in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. And when he put that in there, I thought, oh, I know, I understand what you're saying. An enlightenment came to me. It was like the Holy Spirit said to me at your beginning, did you have it all together? Haven't you had problems? Wasn't their church, was your church, was that church on not the cedar without spot or blemish or not? At the original beginning, was there not some details that needed to be fixed when you went there as a pastor? 
Haven't you had members that have been unruly? Haven't you seen unspiritual, unholy things revealed among the congregation in the 35 years that you pastored? Hasn't there been times when there was misuse of the gifts among you and people didn't hit the mark correctly? Hasn't there been sin and mistakes and problems and situations arise that's not been pleasant, that's not been good, that's been sinful in nature? And yet you're my church. Have I not blessed you? Have I not confirmed my word in you? My testimony's been seen upon you. You have seen miracles, you've had supernatural occurrences and you've had manifestation of my presence. You've had tremendous growth. I have moved you to a $7 million building on 1400 Herschel Bessemer known as the Palace of Praise. I have broadened your tent stakes. I've enlarged you. I have blessed you. I have come down and confirmed my work among you. But haven't you had messages? Somebody said, I'm one, I'm why, I'm two. All of a sudden, I got the message. The Lord seemed to say to me, the church that has no problems is a church that's not doing anything. Come on now. We have to realize that at the time that Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthians, that the believers had not been Christians, but over about, the, the, the oldest one would be three years. A lot of these Christians were three years, two years, one year, and younger. They were all recent converts. They didn't have any generations of Christians in their culture at all. There was no Christian community or example of influence that they could glean from. And none of the Christian, uh, Christian believers that was in the Corinthian church had Christian homes that they come out of. We're fortunate. We've had decades of Christians' influences in our lives. Come on. This is what happens also to the Christian churches where there is a remnant of hungry, holy, anointed people that seek God for an awakening. And I want to tell you something, folks. We around here are hungry. There is a remnant, not all, but there's a remnant that is hungry. And they're holy. And they're seeking God. And they're wanting an awakening to happen. They're wanting to start a spiritual revolution. And when that remnant begins to function under its God-given authority and anointing, and that's what this remnant's beginning to do, there's a shakening in the palace of praise. People are getting out of their comfort zones. The bones are rattling. There's a moving, a shifting going on in the spirit realm. And little by little, bit by bit, people are coming out of their shell. People are coming up and they're being burdened and they're being moved upon by the Holy Spirit to do something. But when that begins to happen and the anointing begins to go out and the authority begins to be exercised in these believers, then evangelism begins to birth more in the kingdom than what discipleship is able to mature. It's a lot easier to get someone saved than it is to get someone discipled because it takes a journey and a process to disciple people. So what do you have when all of a sudden an awakening happens, a revolution happens, an enlightenment happens, floods of sinners come in and get saved. But the problem of it is you can't disciple them as fast as they're coming in and getting saved, which creates messes. Can I have an amen? This creates problems, messes, and mistakes begin to happen due to people's ignorance and their humanity and their flesh and their lack of knowledge. And there's an immaturity among the body because they have not had time to be discipled. 
Think about it. Peter preaches one sermon on the day of Pentecost. Over 3,000 people get saved. Think about what that'll do to a church. What would happen if 3,000 new converts walked through that door and got saved in this service today? Folks, you talking about having a messy church for the next three or four or five years, we're gonna have a messy church. How many like to have 3,000 babies all at once? Hello? They're on fire, they're overzealous. All they know is they're saved. They've been delivered from all of their their, uh, sinful practices and their addictions and all they're transformed in their mind but they come in and they're immature. They don't know nothing about scripture. They don't know nothing about church. They don't know nothing about order. They don't know, all they know is they wanna do something for God and you got 3,000 people ready to do something because they've seen these apostles working in the anointing and all of a sudden they want the anointing just like that overnight. You talking about a problem, that'd be a problem, wouldn't it? In every church that is aggressive in bringing about a spiritual revolution by a remnant getting hungry and beginning to exercise, the first thing that happens is, is that the evangelism efforts begin to supersede and outgrow the ability to disciple the amount of people that's coming in, which causes that church to become messy. Amen. You want to talk about messy around the Miller family? Bring all nine grandchildren at the same time to the house. Amen. This is what the church at Corinth was faced with. It wasn't that they were evil. They were immature. But yet there was a group, a remnant that held it together. And God says, you're the most stable people and strongest people that there is in any church because you're willing to put yourself out on the line and go through the messes in order about to establish the kingdom work that I've called you to establish. Hang on, it's gonna hit in a minute. We have to realize it takes a spiritual church to get the place that these Corinthians were in. Their growth was due to a holy, anointed remnant that produced more results in evangelism than what they did in discipleship. When you look at Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verse 1, you hear these words, and we over, I, I preach a whole sermon on it, and it's more than what I want to give you today, but I just want to give you a few symbolisms. It says, dead flies cause the anointment of the apothecary to send forth a stinking savor. And when you look at that, if you don't pay attention, you don't even realize what it's meaning. When you study about the furnishings of the tabernacle, you'll find that there were lampstands in what they called the holy place that gave light in order to be able to, for the priests to be able to do their duties and to do their ceremonial things in that place. And it served, these lampstands not only served for the light for the priests to do their things, but they'd also served as an apothecary. The word apothecary is a Hebrew word meaning perfumer or the making of perfume. There were men in the word of God, all of their calling was to be apothecaries. They done nothing but make sweet perfume. They made sweet smelling odors. They would go get the flowers and squeeze the juices. They would put these remedies together and these recipes together and they would make scents. Then they would go and they would put those scents in the oil to burn on the lampstands so that there would be odor and aroma in the house of God. The perfumers were made out of certain spices as well as out of the flowers according to the book of 1 Corinthians 16 and 14 and they were used not only for burial, for embalming, but they were also used for the anointing upon people's heads. Come on now. 
As a matter of fact, both the ointment, salve anointment that was made for the healing, and also the anointing oil would come out of a lot of those recipes of the apothecaries. The lampstands in the holy place were used as the apothecary to make a sweet odor in the holy place. And there was also what we call the altar of incense, which represented the prayers of the saints. The oil that burned with these lampstands were scented by these apothecaries and the scent then burned from these lamps would give out this sweet odor and this sweet aroma. And I want to tell you, there ought to be a sweet aroma in the house of God. That means that the atmosphere ought to be charged and ought to be evident that the presence and the sweetness of God is with us. The oil represented the Holy Spirit and the lampstand represented the church, you and I, the body of Christ. The wick of the lampstand was made from the worn out garments of the priest and they were linen. The oil would insaturate that linen wick and when the fire hit, that went and licked, the Holy Spirit fire would hit that lick, wick. That wick was made out of linen, which represents the righteousness of saints. The Bible tells us that. And the several scriptures tells us that linen represents the righteousness of saints. So when you have a remnant who is allowing their wick to be lit by the fire of the Holy Spirit because they have the oil in their lamps, what happens? a fire begins to burn. An aroma from that group begins to go out into the holy place. It begins to bring an anointing and a sweetness throughout the congregation. I'm here to tell you that when you come into this house and there are moments when the Holy Spirit just begins to refresh and bless and touch and anointings dripping and people are falling out on the floor and people are being touched and saved and blessed. You know why? Because there's a part of the functioning body that has been in and got their wick and saturated with the oil of the Holy Spirit and they fired the Spirit, lit that wick and there's a sweet aroma coming from a group of people that's bringing about the sweet odors of God's presence in the house. It does not come cheap. You do not always feel that everywhere you go. Can I have an amen? You know, and then as the aroma would come upon them, I'm going to have to get away from my notes or we'll be here too long. As that aroma would come upon that Linton lamp, it would draw flies, it would draw bugs. If you don't believe me, go get you a lantern and go down southeast Missouri in the St. Francis River and light it up in the middle of the night and see what happens. The heat, the light attracts bugs. And when they would light that lamp, the flies and the bugs would be attracted to that light. And when they get around the heat, they would die. And there'll be so many flies and there'll be so many bugs that would die as a result of that heat that it would cause a stink in the apothecary. Now, I got a whole sermon on that. I just want you to see the symbolisms here. I want you to understand that every single one of you here today represents light because you are the light of the world. You're a city that sits on a hill. 
Every one of you are to have righteousness in you as a believer. You are to have the linen wick that is torn from the garments of the priest's garment, the old worn out garments. You are to be insaturated with oil so that you might burn, that your life would give out light to all men so that it might attract the bugs and the flies. Oh. So what am I saying? I am saying that the anointing attracts messes. I am saying that the anointing attracts bugs and flies. Our problem of it is, is that we want in a Pentecost now, well, calm down, tone it down. You know, don't get so radical. Uh, you know, let's be more moderate. Let's, let's hold back because Let, we don't want to run anybody off. I rebuke that spirit in the name of Jesus Christ because we're not here to build us a nice little church where we only attract people like who we are. We are a church that's anointed to reach a harvest of all race, creeds, colors, and backgrounds. And we are a people that are to be holy lit by the wick of the Holy Spirit. And we are to burn with the passion and the fire of the Holy Ghost to bring about a spiritual revolution. Amen. Now I'm skipping a lot of teaching now. I spent up here hours on this. But now hold it. We see that the Corinthian church drawed all kinds of messes. Are we more concerned about our image and what people think of us and what the town says about us than we are people's needs and the true harvest? We don't want to dirty ourselves up. We want to Try to be a church that, well, this is who we are and bless God, if they want to be like us, they can come. But if they're not going to be like us, they can leave. And that's what they do, they leave. The church is looking for something authentic. They're looking for something real and they're looking for something supernatural. They're not looking for a watered down religion. Come on, somebody. And they want to be a part of something great, something big, something moving, something inspirational, something alive, something that's bigger than who they are. Why? Because they know because the bondages and the things that they got in their lives has to be broken by a higher power than just coming in and submitting to a little bit of a teaching and a pack on the back and say, I love you. There's got to be a supernatural encounter that happens in the house of God, an earth-shaking, wrenching, a glory of the presence of God that is life-changing, life-shattering, that is an anointing that breaks the yoke and bondage off of people's heads. Come on, somebody. And so the Corinthian church was a church that learned how to operate in the gifts. They didn't care what anybody said about their image. They were, people had a lot of problems, but they were a powerful church because it was the power and the anointing upon that church that draw that kind of people to that kind of a house. People wonder why we can't get sinners saved. Because we've toned ourselves down to where there's nothing attractive about us and we don't have a sweet smelling Savior in the house. Come on. 
I want the ushers to lock the doors. Don't let no one out because I want to make some earth-shattering statements right here. Okay? I'm only kidding. Don't lock, don't, don't lock the doors. But I don't want you to leave until you hear me. A spiritual church is not only a suit and tie church. It's an overhaul bib church. You don't have a problem with that. It's a short church. Ain't that sexy. If you want to wear shorts, so be it. We're not going to run you out. And if they're immodest, we'll deal with it in time. Give you a chance to grow. Oh, that's going over like a lead balloon. Paul dealt with those same issues in Corinth. I want to tell you that the palace of praise, a spiritual church, is not only a white church. That's a black church. It's a Hispanic church, a Latino church. It's a Jewish church. It's a, it's a, it's a Polish church. It's a Chinese church. Ah, you don't have no problem with that one either, do you? Hallelujah. The palace of praise, it's not only a holy church of saints, it's a sinner's church. You ain't got no problem with that one either, do you? Okay, now I'm fixing to rock your world. The palace of praise is not only a straight church, it's a gay church. Woo, that'll rock your world. What do you mean we're a gay church? If a gay person comes in here, are they not welcome to sit on our pews? Are they not gonna be loved and respected and we're not gonna be kind to them just like we are anybody else? I wish I took time because I got all this detailed and articulated, but I'm just going on raw anointing right now. That gets me in trouble sometimes. What am I saying? I am saying, what would happen if a, I've been asked this. If a transgender comes into the church, are you going to politely ask them to leave? I said, no, sir. Well, what are you going to do about it? I said, I'm going to love on them. I'm going to tell him how we're glad to have him in the service. I'm going to sit down well. And if he'll let me, I'll take him out to eat or her out to eat with me and Jenny. If it's a her, I'll take him out, eat, sit down, have a little lunch with him. You say, you've lost your mind. Well, Jesus sat with wine bibbers and sinners and ate with them. What makes me any different? How am I going to reach them? How am I going to get them delivered? How are they ever going to get saved if we got a long nose of self-righteousness and we're afraid of them? Is our anointing not strong enough to handle the problems that they bring in? The problem with the church is they don't have enough faith in their own relationship with God and they stink in the apothecary and they don't have enough power to kill the works of the flesh that comes in. Afraid, oh, that'll rub over my children. Bless God, they start letting them kind of people here. Me and my children are out of here. then you're not a part of the remnant. You're not, a, you're not an apothecary. Woo, it's getting tight. <laughs> Lord, help me right here. 
I'm trying to follow the leading of the Lord here, folks. Back in Ninth and Cedar in the 1980s, late 80s, early 90s, one of the two, we had a transgender come into our service. That's before you even know what a transgender was. You know what they called them back then? Hey, that man's dressed like a woman. That's how you called them. They didn't have a name for them. Or that woman's dressed like a man. But this person came in and it was evident that it was a man, but he was dressed like a woman. I walked back, he sat in the floor back, reached out and I looked at him and looking at her and I said, hi, my name's Pastor Miller. What's your name? Adrian. Glad to have you, Adrian. She just stared at me, okay? I'd try to love on her and try to, or him. I'm not gonna call her her when it's a him. That's hard to do though when you're looking at Form blown woman. Had the makeup, dress, everything. Looked like a woman. And I'm sitting there trying to love on this person and I get up and I begin to preach and that night I preached and I know exactly the sermon I preached. Moving mountains, casting out demons, healing the sick. By faith, speaking of those mountains, be thou removed, cast the sea and if you not doubt in the things in which you speak, they shall be done unto you. And I was talking about supernatural power. And I seen as I was preaching, the Lord just kept making me notice that that person was, all of a sudden there come a glow in that person's eyes. I said, ooh, evil reared up. I seen anger in the face and the, the teeth clenching and muscles beginning to flex. I just kept preaching. When I got done preaching, that person came to the altar and the Lord gave me the discernings of the spirit, just like that. I knew exactly what to do. I knew how to do it. Wasn't afraid of it. They come up the altar and they come to cause problems. And I knew it. And before I went and prayed with anybody, I just went over to that person, grabbed them and pulled them into me real close and got them away from the crowd where I wouldn't embarrass them. And I said, look, I know that you're a man dressed like a woman and I know you're demon possessed. And I want you to know that there's deliverance for you in Jesus Christ here today. And we're not afraid of you, nor are we afraid of the demons inside of you. And you can have total deliverance right here today if you really want it. But you're here on an assignment. And you know what that assignment it is, to distract and to try to stop this church because this church has got an anointing upon it. And you're here to try to somehow stifle and hinder the move of God that's taking place here. And it will not be done. Do you understand me? So choose you this day. I said, I know in my spirit that you got a heart that don't want deliverance. But I'm here to offer you deliverance. I tell you, we can lay hands upon you. We can cast these demons that's in you that, that's been tormenting you for years and causing you to be something that you're not, and you can learn your true identity. I don't know exactly all what I said, but I was saying things like that. And I come down to the wire, and I said, look, you are welcome here as long as you don't cause any problems, but you're here to cause problems, and I know your assignment. I even told him what the assignment was. The Lord just revealing it, man. It was just coming as fast as it could. I said, so in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, you either get yourself delivered right here or right now, and if you choose not to do it, then you run out of here and, and don't you come back until you're ready for deliverance. Bam, they ran out and almost broke their neck at the door. Ran. That week, me and my wife was out doing something, and we come in real late in the middle of the night. I said, before we go home, I got to run by the church. And it was about midnight. I can remember it was about midnight. And we pulled up. And I was going to go into church to get something that I had forgotten. And I noticed there's the old house that we had next door to the church where we used to have Sunday schools. We had taken the electricity off of it because we was fixing to tear it down. It's a big two-story house. 
I noticed that one of the doors were cracked open and my spirit, it just hit me. It, I just felt it. And I said, Something, somebody's in the house. She said, well, let's call the police. I said, no, I don't need the police. I'm gonna, I just feel like I need to go up there and check it out. So I, this, the, the door that was open led up to the upstairs to the apartment. So I'm walking, it's pitch dark up the steps. I open the door and there's a little kitchen area and you can see a little bit of shadow because the lights were coming in the window. You go through a little hallway and there's a bathroom to the left, bedroom to the front, and then there's a living room to the right of me. And that was all that was in there. And I was checking it out. I went into the bathroom, didn't see anything. Went in the bedroom and opened the closets. And I couldn't, I was going like this trying to see. And I, I didn't see anything. And I was really trying to get all the light that I could. It was pitch dark. And then I went in the living room and I looked around. There was nothing there. And so I started to leave. I seen stuff all over the floor, but I couldn't tell what it was. And I walked into the kitchen area. And when I did, wham, God said, that transgender and I didn't have the name of that, but that woman, dressed, that man dressed like a woman is in here. I just stopped. And I turned around and the Lord said, call him out. I said, in the name of Jesus Christ, Adrian, I know you're in here and you are not going to violate this house and you're not going to do harm to this property. So in the name of Jesus, you come out. And I heard a boom, boom, and, it, and I could never could find him. And all of a sudden, that spirit left me. I went home. The next day, I went there to check it out. He had come out of the attic when I was doing that in a different room, went into the bathroom, opened the window, and went out the window of the top floor. And he had women's clothing everywhere, had a little message for me on the wall with lipstick. And I thought, uh-huh. That next Sunday... He was at a church here in town. Went in and tore that place up during their service. They had to call the cops. There was fights. He broke a man's nose. They arrested him and they took him down. And they found out that he had been at our church. Said, did he cause any problem? I said, nope, he didn't cause no problem at our church. Said, well, they had to, when they got him there, they had to get a doctor to come down and examine to see whether it was a male or a female. And it was definitely a male. I said, oh, I know it was. Then I told him the story. He said, Why, how did you have that much boldness? To, what if you would have been wrong? I said, the anointing never lies. Now, here's the, here's the whole scope of the story. What happens as this remnant gets serious about all these prayer meetings we're having? People begin to activate their faith. They begin to speak out, and all of a sudden, a transgender comes in and sits down beside you. What are you going to do? What happens if a drunk comes in? Slobbering drunk, smelling bad, and comes down, flops down in front of you. How are you going to treat him? What happens if you know of a known drug pusher in your neighborhood that comes in and flops down across the arena? What are you going to do? What happens when multiple people all at once of that kind of caliber begins to come in? How are you going to feel about your church then? How are you going to react? How are you going to respond? The spiritual church is a church that has a remnant that 
keeps themselves alive by their fiery devotion at the lampstand getting lit by the Holy Spirit and through their odor, they are able to pastor and they're able to bring church disciplines in the area of that arena to where that the sinner does not set the tone and the atmosphere and the culture of the church, but the, 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 the remnant is in charge of the atmosphere of the church. In other words, they don't rub off on us, we rub off on them. Because the anointing is stronger than the works of the, in the arm of flesh. Can I have an amen? The anointing will challenge them to the point that they'll, ever get, they'll either get saved or they'll run out because they can't take the heat. Amen? I know without a shadow of a doubt that if a transgender comes in here and I'm going to love on him and they're not going to get disorderly, but there's one thing for sure. This, he gonna allow, I'm not going to allow him or her to have a platform to preach their cause. I'll deal with it. And if they go to the bathroom, if it's a male, they're going to the male bathroom. No matter the who dressed like a woman. We're not letting them change us to accommodate them. Hey, if you want to come in here and be a part and be free, that's fine. But we got, we got disciplines that bring about the blessing and we're not violating the blessing just because of you. We're gonna love you and as a result of the blessing you can be delivered but it's all up to you whether or not you wanna follow the protocol in order to become who we are but you're not bringing us down to the level of who you are. That's a spiritual church. That you don't back down on your beliefs just because they're here. You don't, but on the flip side of it, you don't tone yourself down in order to accommodate those that are not like that either. Amen? I'm here to try to convey unto you something that's on my heart. God has spoken to me, and if his will is accomplished, if this remnant reaches the level that God wants to reach, God said you better get ready because the messes are coming. All kinds of walks are going to walk in that door. If a drunk comes in, he's welcome. If he gets unruly and loud and disrupts the service, our ushers will deal with it. But we're not going to just jump on him on every little thing that he does wrong. My dad taught me something about fishing. He's got a thing called a trammel net. I don't know if you know what a trammel net is. I think they're even against the law to use now. Might have been when we were using it when I was a kid. I don't know. Probably was. We done hoop nets and we done trammel nets. We go down there at the river and we put the hoop nets in the river and we put the tremble nets in the overflow in the old rivers, in the sloughs. And one thing about a net, how many knows that the gospel is called the, the gospel net? Amen? Let out your nets for a drought. And the thing about it is we were fishing for catfish 99.9% of the time. But when you pulled up that tremble net, you had buffalo, you had carp, you had gar, you had grinnel, you had drum, you had every rough of suckers. Come on now. And we'd sit there, that's a cull, throw him away. And we called them the culls and we'd throw them away. And that's exactly what the church does. They pick and choose the sinners that they want to get saved. That's a cull, throw him out, throw him out, throw him out, throw him out. 
And when that gospel goes out, folks, it's like a net. It's going to bring in every kind of different kind of walk that you've ever seen in your life. And we've got to be strong enough and anointed enough to deal with the problems and the messes that they bring with them. And wise enough. Church disciplines have to be in order. Come on. There's got to be a segment of the church that communicates in a proper way. There's got to be leadership that's ready to deal with hard knock problems. And it can't just be one man, the pastor. Well, go see Randy or go see Kent. No, 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 no. This body's got to rise up. Are you ready for it? Would you stand with me, please? There's a scripture that I use about the oxen. It says, where there's no oxen in the crib, there's, the barn is clean, but where there's an oxen, it's, not, it's dirty. I'm going to ask you a question. Do you want a field barn or a clean barn? The oxen is a harvest animal. He helps bring in the harvest. So if you're going to bring in the harvest, guess what happens? You're going to have manure in the stalls. You're going to have an oxen. A spiritual church is a church that's going to have messes all over it. There's going to be Crayola marks on the Sunday school walls. Come on. There's going to be running the church. Hey, slow down, slow down. There's going to be unruliness at times. There's going to be craziness that goes on. There's going to be holes knocked in the walls by kids. So you're going to put up with that? We'll deal with it. But yeah, I'll put up with it in order to win them. Amen? There'll be people that'll come in that don't dress right, act right, look right, talk right. There are going to be some coming in so twisted on drugs that they're going to be out of their heads and we're going to have to be patient with them and loving with them. Because if it wasn't for the grace of God, that's who you are because we were all in sin and we all come out of that.